Hello, you're listening to Film Grays. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. And we're both from the band Phil Grays. And we're back to talk about some more highlights of cinema, repertory, and new releases. Yeah, uh, we're going to start by talking about Midsummer, the new Ariasta release. Then we're going to talk about a uh, restoration of Robert Bresson's first colour film, Unfam Deuce, and other Bresson films that we've been lucky enough to see recently. Yeah, and then finally, uh, we're going to look at some other new releases. Stay tuned. All right, on Film Graze today, the first film we're going to graze on is one of the more significant releases of the Somar, Ari Aster's Midsommar, his second feature. Yeah, after Hereditary, which was last year, um, which was more of a conventional horror visually. Mm-hmm. Um, Still pretty batshit. Tropes. Yeah, this is a completely different sort of situation, really, isn't it? Um, should we start with the plot? Yeah, okay, so it concerns a group of students. Um, in the opening scene, the protagonist, Danny, played by Florence Pugh, loses her parents and sister in a very traumatic way. Yeah, it's a really horrible sequence. <sighs> very upsetting. Seemingly what this guy trades off in his big stock. Anyway, she's really grief-stricken. Her shitty boyfriend, who is an anthropology student, a PhD student, although without a thesis, um, <laughs> and his mates are going on like a lads trip to Sweden. Um, yeah, I can't remember the name of this. It's called Hauger, I believe. Right. Um, because one of their friends, who's called Pöhle, um, is is a Swedish dude, and he's like, "Yeah, it'll be great. We can all go." He's, and yeah, come and meet my family. Yeah, exactly. You'll love them. They will certainly love you. <laughs> <laughs> and another of their friends, I can't remember his name, Patrick, is that his name? He's writing a PhD on midsummer traditions in the Norse lands. Yeah, why not? Why? I mean, it's interesting, yeah. interesting topic. Anyway, Christian, which is Danny's boyfriend, doesn't tell her. And then she finds out like two weeks before they go. And it's all really awkward, but because he feels bad for her even though his mates are all just like openly like or at least the character played by will polter one of the least likable gates in british acting i feel whenever i see this guy just playing a prick um they all just hate on her but then he feels awkward about it so yeah he's like maybe considering your family have just died in this horrific murder suicide probably shouldn't leave you you behind yeah you you can come to on this anthropology field trip. Yeah. And it's quite a long film, isn't it? I Two mean, and a half hours. How long is it before? What, before anything, like... No, just before all this, like, sort of tension building at the beginning. Probably, yeah. Fair, it's a fair chance. Takes place in America. Yeah. Yeah. Although the pacing was just on point, I feel. Yeah, certainly. It is building up the tension throughout this period. It's not just, like, fallow time before yeah, yeah, yeah. action happens or yeah. something. Um, so then they, they all end up going on a trip together mm-hmm. to this remote place where the days are really long yeah 20 plus hours of sunlight or whatever so it's a horror set in the daylight as opposed to hereditary and most of hereditary scares come in the conventional shadowy mm-hmm. remit you know things yeah. creeping around in the corner of a room that you can't yeah, quite right. see there is still a lot of dark visually dark sequences in this film that take place like indoors and stuff like that, you know. For sure, in the sort of communal hall that they all yeah, stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so they're introduced to this community. They all seem really nice. They've all got these nice white robes on. 
and you know i don't know what it devolves into a pretty conventional folk horror Mm-hmm. Uh, which deploys sort of ritual sequences, a passage through time, and like things happening mm-hmm. over this period. It's nine days, this sort of ritual that then that they're then part of. And yeah, I guess it gets pretty fucked up, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. In ways that I just enjoyed without reservation, really. You know. Cool. Yeah, not for the squeamish. Um, no, I was liking in the violence to like hot fires or something like that. It's not very typical horror screen violence, you know. It's not very typical anything, like, not very typical mise-en-scene, not very typical music, acting, st- well, I guess the acting style is probably quite... I'd say it is, the film is quite typical, really. You'd say so? Yeah, definitely. In the way it's trading off, not just classic folk horrors like The Wicker Man, mm-hmm. in terms of its imagery, its pacing, the trajectory of the characters through the story towards a... Resolution. Some sort of... A horror movie scene. resolution. Denouement, yeah. Um, it's also... It's bad to say aping, but films like Ben Wheatley's Kill List, I mean, it's a folk horror, it's a kitchen sink drama that turns into folk right. horror. Right. Where, um, which is structurally very similar to what happens in this film. There's <laughs> another film called um, The Ritual that came out a couple of years ago. I have not seen um, that one. Yeah, I'm I mean, it's, it's sort of trashy, trashier than Kill List, which I would highly recommend. The Ritual, again, is like a group of friends. One of their friends is plan- planning this big hiking trip through Sc- somewhere in Scandinavia mm-hmm. and he dies and then they decide to go to like honour his memory. So they're supplanted into, you know, this pagan other scape, you know. Yeah, where okay, yeah. With the... It's just a similar sort of vibe, basically. Um, I guess what's interesting about this maybe is that it, it does have this sort of eye on anthropology. <laughs> But in terms of it trying to represent an actual ritual, um, as well as like making it very clear that like that's what it's interested in, i.e. midsummer rituals, because mm. the characters are interested in it as an academic phenomenon. And supposedly a lot of the film and the events in the film are somewhat grounded in real traditions and real rituals. Some of them. Yeah, I guess so. I don't I don't know. I guess it's a sort of amalgamation of different practices. Yeah. Yeah, right, okay. Well, there are maypoles, which I guess is very traditional sort of thing you'd expect. There are also... Yeah, they are conventional, typologically. What do you call the bear thing? I don't know, like sort of pageantry and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, roles that are assigned during rituals. I'm talking about the, like, immolation, pyre, shit, or whatever. Presumably that is also... Yeah, for sure, but like an effigy yeah, forms yeah, the yeah. same. Yeah. And it's not an effigy, spoiler alert. Um <laughs> <laughs> one thing I thought was interesting actually is that it has this really close eye on ritual and grounds itself in um, these ritual traditions that are actually like alienating for us as viewers mm-hmm. and scary mm-hmm. scenarios, you know. But most of the overt horror comes from going outside of that ritual framework, which already has like scary shit inside of it, mm-hmm. and characters just being murdered outside of a ritual context. Right. And okay, I thought yeah. this was quite interesting because it frames itself around all this sort of ritual theory and anthropological tradition. But uh, I guess the scary stuff is when characters get like drawn out of the crowd and, Breaking then, the rules. and then bludgeoned. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought about it. The rituals are all performed with people with smiles on their faces. They've been waiting nine years to... And they are, but they are bloody rituals, but yeah. it's all like very performative and cathartic or whatever for these people yeah um but i guess the true horror actually lies out i just love the, i just love the the 
anthropology PhD students who just can't handle the uh, can't handle it, you know. Yeah, the representation of academia is pretty hilarious. Yeah, there's a there's a subplot involving one character stealing another character's thesis, which is just outrageous. And if you're doing an anthropo, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Like, <laughs> if you're trying to do an anthropology PhD, it would be like you have to have a literally. For it can, it, it can be literally anything in the world. Why would it be? And yeah, you, as you said, yeah, you need to. It's way more formal than they. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're yeah. quite deep into their programs already. And he's like, oh, I don't have a thesis yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're here, maybe I'll um, cut the swag. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the mediocrity of these like American people is, again, a super... Not these American males, let's say. Mm. The victims or whatever. Or the, the characters, at least when you start watching the film, you're like, oh, I hope these are going to be the victims. At least I was. Yeah, of course. Well, they're very, like, jocular and... Yeah. They're just nasty and they just suck, you know, I feel. Especially like... because Florence Pugh's character is situated very clearly as a protagonist. Yeah, great performance, I've got to say. Yeah, I'm definitely. She really Pugh. carries. Yeah. yeah, you're with her quite a lot. Yeah, the camera really follows her there's, a lot. Yeah, and there's a lot of non-verbal acting, you know, which very I much really so. appreciate. Um, she does a really great job. But yeah, I mean, the, these other guys just suck, really, you know. Her boyfriend, maybe, worst of all. Yeah, Ari Aster has made quite a point of framing this film not just as a horror, but also as a breakup film. Mm-hmm. And that's very clear throughout in terms of representing psychological trauma. A lot of the drama of the film is about her and his relationship. And from the very start, he's made out to be someone that she should definitely break up with, to be honest. Yeah. That's an interesting thing because like the, the sort of personal auteur qualities of Ari Aster's um, brief thus far filmography are very it's like very experiential a lot of it is about anxiety and grief and these kind of things hereditary especially in the context of um family and relationships yeah absolutely a a big theme in both films hereditary is pretty different i'd say um both in terms of what kind of story it's telling and also from a shooting from a style perspective really i mean there are a couple of like really crazy shots in this film like when the camera like flips 360 degrees when the uh, when the car is driving to the village or whatever yeah it's a really visually stunning film um uh, the sort of iconography all the sets are crazy the landscape is crazy the representation of tripping is second to none i would say yeah very it's, um, um, very cool i love that one flower on her head that just kept going you know that's... to cite another ben wheatley film a field in england i feel um also has a similar vibe in how it represents these sorts of experiences True say. I'm sure there were lots of well, that. Or more, more a field in England than like fucking Enter the Void or something. Well, yeah, know. for sure. For sure. Um, and I guess how you'd represent natural police third person tripping. There's also a sequence in a, a forthcoming big summer film that has a good like third person tripping sequence where you're just watching someone. But it, you know, this, you're there and the CGI is doing a lot to yeah. replicate. And yeah. yeah, really cool. I love the I love the camera work in this film. That was one of my favourite things about it. And as I say, I found it really different to Hereditary, which I found stylistically pretty irritating and also just bewildering. I think that's unfair, man. I think they both use... I feel like they're comparable. They're obviously very contrasting, but I feel like they both have moments where they frame things in a really interesting way. There's a moment at the end of Hereditary um, where you get a sort of 
I guess like a privileged perspective on um, what's happening. Yeah. Um, you using get some, some really jokes, camera work. Yeah, some levitation. Sort of, yeah, some sort of, and it's sort of a miniaturization sort of thing. <clears throat> well, if I remember correctly, the start of Hereditary had that like doll's house, right? Where it kind of prefigured the whole film right. with all in like miniature. And this film has something quite, si it. this film has something quite similar with the uh, illustrations and a lot of the wall paintings and stuff that yeah. foretell a lot of what's going on in Midsommar. But the crucial difference, I think, with the, the camera styles of Hereditary and Midsommar is experiential, again, as I say, like in this, is pretty, apart from like certain like tableaus and like big set pieces, the camera is walking around pretty much constantly. If, if it's not handheld, if I don't know what techniques they're actually using, I haven't seen much like production footage or whatever. It must be handheld. Well, I think a lot of it must be because it's so tactile. And it's beautiful. Like, yeah. I think it's so cool, I especially for a mainstream blockbuster film where like m most of the camera is moving. And like 10 years ago, you would never have had a film like this, you know. He's clearly influenced by directors who like not, not use show off -y long takes necessarily, but don't rely on editing to put together the whole film. I feel like there must have been a lot of rehearsal in this film and a lot of like arrangement of how the camera was going to work around. Whereas I think Hereditary is a bit more traditional horror movie in terms of the reliance on editing. You said it yourself, the form of the story influences how it's being filmed. Mm -hmm. And in Hereditary, especially after the um, sort of big action flashpoint. Uh, like Hereditary. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> then it's not the characters treat. are in like stasis, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the camera, I think, interacts with that. Mm. Um, mm. Another thing, nice. uh, <laughs> what you were saying about the camera being very dynamic, the uh, camera work in the filmmaker that we hopefully will be discussing soon, Lazo Nemez, mm. um, in Sunset and very, in Son of Saul. Very similar it's technique. Extremely dynamic rep. It gives a real sense of um, subjectivity rather than objectivity yeah. when you're watching. Um, and I guess that's the point in Midsummer because you're sort of meant to feel like you're stumbling through the field uh -huh. with them. Uh -huh. That's, yeah, couldn't have said it better in so few words or in many more. And it's great. It is great. I, I didn't really like Hereditary. Um, I'm going to watch it again, but I just, yeah, as I say, I found it kind of bewildering. I found it hard to find it scary because I didn't really know what was going on. Well, no, I didn't really know what was going on, but I couldn't be bothered to work out what was going on. But yeah, I thought I it had like really it. good acting in it. You liked it. I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. I feel like I mainly remember images from it. Uh, there's a sort of witchy subplot that I can't yeah. really remember that well. Yeah. Anyway, Ariasta, doing well. He also seems like a really nice guy. I listened to the, yeah. listened to the film comment um, screen talk he did. Yeah, it was really good. Very, very sincere person, you know. He's not up himself. And he um, really... Is doing, I think he's doing this shit for the right reasons. I think he's really making empathetic films that are well, clearly appealing to a lot of people. I mean, both of these films have been mad successful. Yeah. Big marketing. Yeah, A24, of course. Yeah. Name of the game. But sometimes they promote films that look really cool. Yeah. I re yeah, Midsommar was fantastic. I thought I really appreciated it. Yeah, back it. See you when you can. So last week we went to see a restoration of Une Femme Douce, Robert Bresson's first colour film at the ICA. Yes, we're very lucky to be 
at one of two screenings of it, even though it's a very newly restored digital print. Yeah. Uh, first released in 1969. And yeah, it's back. <laughs> quite, it's considered quite a minor press on film. And one of the ones that I hadn't got around to seeing until last week. Um, and I think there is, with certain big name directors, uh, effort to historicise and restore every frame of film they ever made. So as a result, we're getting nice exclusive restorations of all the rest on film. Yeah, it was a packed house at the ICA. Too packed, if you ask me. Uh, yeah, it was warm. Should um, have been screen one is what I'm trying to say, really. Yeah, it was a, sw- yeah, it was it was a big s- event, guys. On fam deuce. For sure. How many seats were in the room? Not many. Not, not, many. not more than 20. Than more not. than that, but there could have been a lot more. <laughs> Fuck knows what they were doing in the big room anyway. Infam Deuce, story of a young woman who marries a sort of pawnbroker, and um, it's just about their relationship. However, well, mm, that's not really what it's about, is it? Okay, the film opens with her suicide, and it's kind of framed with the pawnbroker himself, who's um, about 20 or 30 years older than the gentlewoman of the title, talking about their relationship and the circumstances in which they led this very miserable life together. She initially comes to his pawn shop. She's trying to get money to get some textbooks. He basically convinces her to marry him after Mm. some courtship. This very elliptical film, you know. Yeah, Um, we see the relationship play out in relatively conventional terms, really. Yeah. I think the age difference thing is meant to be more more important in the Dostoevsky original. Okay. I think in the film, the, the actors, there's not a huge disparity between their ages. It's definitely not decades, I think. You can tell they're from different worlds. They're very different kinds of people. Quite a lot like Obscure Object of Desire by Bunuel, his last film, which I feel has a kind of similar yeah, relationship sure. at the heart. Very similar films, actually. Yeah. Although that film is just fucking hilarious. And More farcical. Yeah, there's nothing funny about Unfam Deuce. Well, maybe the monkey shot. Yeah. He says, you should marry me. And she says, no, I don't want to. And they're on a date in the park. And then he says, oh, a lot of like young girls like just want to get married. And then it cuts to a monkey in a cage. It's a pretty un-Brissonian moment, to be honest. For sure, the, the like an extremely edit. literal. <laughs> it is a pretty, yeah, it's a depressing story, and it's not a particularly interesting story either. This is this is and, the thing. Um, Bresson said that he loved the work of Dostoevsky and like he really um, sort of revered it. He's well, of great. course, you think about Pickpocket and how similar that is to Crime and Punishment with the protagonist. But, well, for sure, thematically, he's clearly influenced it by it. But in terms of actually adapting the work, he said like. I don't really want to touch these, like the big, the big, big dogs, you know. Yeah. So he adapts these like minor works of yeah. Dostoevsky, which he considered like imperfect or overly sentimental or like sort <laughs> of like problematic narratives as a canvas. That so he could just do the Bresson thing to. Yeah, so he could just bat it up. Yeah, you know? I mean, because that is, you know, What's cool about Bresson is the way he frames things, it's the way he represents time. Especially watch it on the cinema screen, you know. It's For a sure. patient film. Yeah. I mean, their narrative is obviously important, but 
it's not central at all. It's an aesthetic project that involves narrative, but is not all about it. You know, that's just one part of it. And he wants to elicit an emotional reaction from the viewer, or by using a boring story, he wants to achieve that. Yeah, because it's an emotional journey, and it is gestured. Bresson was famous for trying to develop a film style that was about watching a film and rejected things like musical underscore for like most of the films usually and just only used music to like punctuate certain moments mm. and basically just a heightened experience when you're watching a film as opposed to watching a play or looking at paintings or something like this. There's a extendo sequence mm -hmm. in, in Femme Deuce where the eponymous gentlewoman and her husband are at a theatre watching a uh, performance of Hamlet and it's like the end and it's like a long interjection in mm -hmm. the film, you know, like a, we watched the performance with, with them, basically. Fuck, I can't remember why I... Were you going to say that... The, well, was even, where was the, even the, going with the it? difference between the theatrical acting of the actors acting yeah, in exactly. the film and the, like, model acting of the actors in the Bresson film who aren't acting because... You know, like when that's he's exactly it. Fantastic. He he has this extendo sequence to show, yeah, to right. juxtapose the uh, reality he's trying to depict of the woman or the man, mm -hmm. depending on whose perspective it is. Which you know, there's it's from his perspective he's narrating it, but yeah, it's a different sort of performance. And yeah, it's really memorable though. Like I haven't really been able to stop thinking about that scene where she cries. And she just does the same like repetitive gesture over and over again. As a, she just like puts her hand to her face and like gasps and goes. On. It's like silent film acting or whatever. And it's yeah, so, but he it's he... so far away from like Marlon Brando or something like that, or like really expressive. Mm. Really... I think he would would critique early silent, you know, silent film acting mm -hmm. because of the relationship between early film and um, the fifth. Yeah. Where there is like a sort of mannerism in his, how he directs his actors or non-actors as they mm -hmm. are, but it's different to what he saw as like <laughs> the crassness of the theatre. Maybe if you use theatre acting in film, it's it's bad, right? Yeah, this is the point. Yeah, He's yeah, a, yeah. and silent film, I guess, would probably do that, right? Um, Real acting, but because. In the theatre, it's not bad acting. Theatre acting, he's not saying theatre acting is bad acting, but it's incompatible with film. Yeah, yeah, that is, right. Yeah. Because there's no like flesh and blood and spittle, so you need to approach film in a different way. So it is mannered, but, but you see, maybe that's just too academic. And you, if you're saying it's mannered, and it doesn't matter what sort of mannerism it is, but it's also methodical because you see people doing things. You know, there's a lot of fragmentation of like action when mm. you're seeing like a hand pick something up someone walking opening a door these kind of this is in all his films but i feel like this was he'd reached a particularly high level of insistence on this kind of there's a famous story of some like big european or hollywood producers it was in the 60s trying to make a big bible film you know in this genesis so they were adapting is noah's ark in genesis shortly early on so i guess it was robert bresson's genesis and they got the whole arc and all the um, animals, you know, lined up, walking up, but Bresson just showed their footprints as all the animals went by. I don't know if that's a true story, but kind of jokes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it sums it up. <laughs> yeah, in terms of yeah. what he's trying to do. Yeah, for sure. And in that's terms acting, of that's the sort as much of... as, you know, speechifying and real tears and... 
tearing your hair out or any of these kind of things, you know. How he uses music in this film is interesting as well because I'm, is there a, a soundtrack as such? Couldn't tell you. There's an um, opening title sequence. Otherwise, though, the music is all, yeah, diegetic. It's the record, uh, from a record player, as opposed to some of his earlier films where, they're, as you said, uh, they're, they're punctuated by these sort of overtures. Mm-hmm. Um, the Morris art in A Man Escapes is just fantastic. But um, Die of a Country Priest has a especially mewling, sentimental soundtrack. Mm. Late motif. Whereas in this one, it seems way more part of like an integrated, thoughtful way of yeah, using fun. sound as well as images and models, as he calls them, and yeah, stories. He closed down his style to a certain extent. This is after he'd published his book, I think. The uh, notes. Notes on the cinematographs. You know, once yeah. he'd said his thing about like, oh, it has to be this, it has to be that, at least you've got to commit to it. Fair, yeah. The dogmatic turn. Yeah. You know? Good film, though. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, for sure. As his first colour film, I think it was interesting. It was a largely brown film, I feel. Um, Muted, (laughs) you know, your t-shirt, my trousers, kind of colours. This is great podcast material right here, isn't it? But... He's said to have used colour in this film to compensate for um, a lack of exposition, right? Mm -hmm. Or to counter the narrative that's being verbalised. So to express different moods, counter to speech or facial expressions. Yeah. So, I don't know, it, like, it, I think it was, like, quite rich in terms of how the colour was used. Mm-hmm. But, it was, you know, yeah, they used I think it was, inev- it was expressively. It, yeah, it, it, yeah, it was inevitable, though, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's just such, like, a rich visual approach. This Brian you Price put- book, I've got Neither God Nor Master, Robert Bresson and Radical Politics. The chapter on, on Fam Deuce. It's largely talking about it as a post-May 68 film after the firing of Henri Longuois and the protests in France and a lot of the French filmmakers getting involved in the protest movement. This book, which is really good, I really recommend it if you want a Marxist study of Bresson's entire work from his photography with the surrealists through all his films. Um, But he talks a lot about colour in this and about how, yeah, what we were talking about with moving away from the more heightened, unrealistic qualities of watching a black and white film to colour which you can manipulate even further. How in the scenes with the protagonist, well, she's not, even, she's not really the protagonist. No, because I guess this comes to the fact that it's from the man's perspective. Yeah, and yeah, like he's yeah. the protagonist, it's his defence. But it dramatises the repression yeah. on her life as the colour palette gets more and more muted after they get married, etc. When you watch L'Argent and The Devil Probably, again, they're like urban, modern films set in modernity. And I guess that's an interesting thing about how he adapted the Dostoevsky story that was written about 100 years before, and he said he didn't want Troikas, da-da-da. Yeah. He didn't want, like, a period setting, basically. Um, And he brought it into the late 60s. Yeah, but there's not much evidence of um, political... This reading that you're talking about is yeah. very allegorical. Yeah, um, very, like, looking for the structuring absences. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's no, as far as I remember, evidence of unrest. It's just all... No, these of... characters are some sort of fucking synecdoche of the unrest, right? Their yeah, because she starts out, she's a student, and he's a ex-bank manager who... 
dramatizes her repression in mm. a very, very literal sense. Yeah, and he said he wanted um, to generate this sense of constant confrontation. That's not, that is achieved in this film. Unfam Deuce by Robert Bresson. Um, I believe there'll be a Blu-ray coming out of this lovely digital restoration. Yeah, probably with some naughty special features, I expect. I'm sure. I'm sure it's great. Yeah. Big booklet. Yeah, come on, can't wait. Um, we've also... Bresson session. I was very lucky while I was over in New York to visit the anthology film archives for the first and second and third and fourth and fifth time. It's a very famous place that's established by Jonas Mikus, recently deceased, and it's an old courthouse. But they screen films in um, experimental films and repertory cinema, and they have a lot of artists in to do talks, but they also have this really cool collection of film prints. It was established in 1971, I think. They do not have Unfam Deuce in this collection, but they do have a lot of Bresson's films. They were screening a lot of his classics at a discounted rate, and they also, you know, in the next couple of months, they're also going into their archive and screening Dreyer and Eisenstein. So if you live in New York and you somehow found yourself listening to this for whatever reason, go go to Anthology because it's a really cool place. So I got to see Pickpocket, Diary of a Country Priest and A Man Escaped in rapid succession and you transatlantically also watch these films. Yeah, unfortunately not in some um, interesting institutional context, rather sitting at home. It was cool to see these films projected on film, i got to say. Yeah, how badly damaged were the prints that you um, saw? Not as bad as some of the other ones I saw. I went to see Shane and like half the reels had a line going down the middle. These were, and these are like original, original prints, you know, from the 70s in their archive. Yeah, it's I very guess. cool that they're still um, displaying them. Yeah, as opposed to us seeing Unfound Deuce on a digital restoration. These look better, definitely. Uh, because of their sort of tactility. Their um, otherworldly qualities, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I never see a uh, film projected. Nah. I feel nah. like that it's all digital now. Yeah. I'm trying to see museum. Might yeah. Be one of the only places you hit yeah, up Kevin Brownlow's 16mm collection screenings. Yeah, we've been to some yeah. cool stuff. Oh, was it a dryer we saw there? Yeah, once? I saw, yeah. Uh, the Bride of Glomdor. Yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> it's a Drea film, man, come on. How can you say that? Um, cool place, though. Cool place. Definitely, yeah, Cinema Museum, shout out. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll have to talk more about them on future episodes. Yeah, anything else on Anthology? What was the best on standout? I mean, I love these films. I've seen them all loads and loads of times. Yeah. I guess this is kind of classically regarded as a trilogy. They're all adaptations, but this is really where he honed his style. These are the films that Paul Schrader really talks about in his film book Transcendental Style where he also talks about Ozu and Drea A Man Escaped was the only one I didn't go to by myself and both the people I was with really loved it this is also on this was like 40 degrees outside and it's not very well ventilated in there so seeing A Man Escaped in these kind of settings as opposed to Unfound Deuce it was actually kind of brilliant yeah I've got to say um, watching them for the first time Man Escaped definitely the standout of the three for me um, why would you say that is I don't know, they're all very self-contained narratives mm. um, and they all have the same formal appeal. There's just something hard to say, man. <laughs> um, they're all very similar. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what it was about it. They've got miserable, spiritually repressed protagonists. Yeah, maybe the fact that it was... Uh, there's more inherent drama in, this, in the scenario 
And I know that doesn't even lend itself to... A lot of people say that A Man Escaped, there's less drama because you know the ending from the title. Uh... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what to say. You're still listening to Film Graves with Emmett and Sam from Film Graves. still listening to film greys just before the show comes to an end we're just gonna go through a few other films we've seen more contemporary releases more contemporary than Bresson at least Sam you watched Netflix doc du jour the great hack directed by Netflix (laughs) yeah thoughts Uh, we all know about uh, Cambridge Analytica and Mm -hmm. how they use data and social media to influence uh, elections Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. or uh, electoral decisions all like pretty nefarious shit, a lot of whistleblowing in the wake of, I guess, Brexit and the Trump mm-hmm. election campaign. And that's what this film's about. It just like follows um, some of these whistleblowers and I guess, well, the sort of people that are covering their asses basically. Mm. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's it's not a great documentary, really. Nah, um, it's really. It sort of sensationalizes it in a way which is not really useful. No. And it's, it's not a good antidote to what Cambridge Analytica are doing. No, it's just, a, I don't know. It's a lot of like sort of cheap graphics of like data entering oh, the ether. The first like five like, minutes was just and, unwatchable. Yeah, with all and, that. you know, like yeah. brains exploding <laughs> with, you know, <laughs> yeah. like a fucking early 2000s Marvel title sequence, mm-hmm. you know, for an X-Men film or something. Well, This was what? My a problem. crass reduction, you know. I had a lot of problems with it. Um, I didn't find it that interesting. I didn't learn anything from it, really. I also didn't think it was that radically different to the kind of shit that governments have been doing for the whole time in terms of psyops lying to their citizens or whatever, really believe what you want to believe. But I guess the thing about this is that it's unattributable or whatever. This is what certain people were saying to me. Yeah, and it's sort of like chaotic um, rather than nationalistic, for example. Rather than lawful. Yeah, exactly. And like, yeah, full chaotic evil, basically. Because, you know, it's just a bit of fucking banter for these people, basically. And they're just, they've got their shiny toy. It is interesting to see the sort of genealogy of, of this. Insofar as they started out as like a fucking arms company, basically, yeah. um, specialising in, as you said, psyops. As a, you know, it's all super fucking nefarious. Yeah, but, but you can read a couple of articles by Carol Cadawalder or whatever, as opposed to watching this bait-ass Netflix documentary yeah. that was far too similar to Beyond the Curve, the Flat Earther documentary. The Fire documentary yeah. is very, like, identikit Netflix documentary. Yeah, it's invested in its su- its subject as a as a person rather than a subject i.e. the topic at hand. That's the great hack. Don't watch it. It's bait. For sure. I mean, if you if you want to learn about about this, all the cutting edge insights from it are from 
Carol yeah. Cadwallader's um, journalism. Yeah. She's interviewed uh, consistently throughout the film. She's a sort of return, recurring character, pouring through boxes of, you know... In, her own archives. Uh, yeah, her, her research. Like, if you're interested in it, I'd say that's where... You know. Delete your Netflix and <laughs> read The Guardian on, on incognito mode. Uh, next. <laughs> next, we both recently watched the animated Spider-Man film, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's Fire. really good. <laughs> Fire. Yeah. I hate superhero films, but this just blew me away, to be honest. I was sitting there, just laughing, glued to the screen, saying wow to the, the seat in front of me. You know, it's I was cr- on a plane, not just in the same. <laughs> it's, um, as you've just pointed out, it's a really funny film. Compositionally, it's really, really good. The animation yeah. is really cool. Loads of different styles. And, um, Often in the same frame, you know, you've got stars bleeding into each other. Yeah, like, exactly. Very uh, Pomo, yeah, um, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah I guess really. it was very Pomo. <laughs> but, um, it's also just a Spider-Man film, successful, entertaining film yeah. for the whole family. Yeah, definitely. The Sway Lee and the Sway Lee and Post Malone song is a bot, and Nicolas Cage is pretty jokes. Spider Verse is fire. Yeah, I yeah, thumbs up. Speaking of good special effects, good animated films, um, Apollo 11, the documentary. I'm sad I didn't get to see it in the cinema because those, are, those CGI must have looked amazing on the big screen. <laughs> but I just watched Only it. Stanley Kubrick effort, right? Pretty yeah, much. This was like based the, on the, the Stanley deleted, Kubrick film. Deleted scenes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is you know, like the making of the Stanley <laughs> Kubrick film, basically. The guy who played Neil Armstrong, I mean, you know, convincing performance. <laughs> Is the archival footage really cool, though? Archival? Yeah, no. It was, <laughs> it was really cool. Like, How's it structured, is it? like? Um, there's no narration. It's just, like, real-time, essentially. Great. Well, no, the, the countdown to the launch is, like, three days or whatever, but you're just there, like, moment by moment, going from, like, Houston to, like... Yeah, I can't wait to see it, and I'm going to try and see it on, on the big screen if I get the opportunity. It sort of... It, it, it was there a sort of restoration effort involved in it, or was it? It was all like unseen footage yeah. that they. I guess they had the next fucking level cameras, you know, the Barry Lyndon. Yeah, cameras yeah, the Zeiss, Zeiss lenses and stuff. Um, yeah, the Apollo Eleven. They... <laughs> I find it interesting that they went through all of that just to prove a point, and the Saul Bass poster is fire for yeah. this film as well. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure, for sure. Um, it's good. I'd recommend it to be honest. Regardless of what you leave about the heliocentric globe model. <laughs> Film oh. Grays. Another banging episode in the can. Thanks for listening. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Um, we say it every time. Please book Phil Graves if you're trying to play some shows. Also, keep your ears peeled. There's going to be more episodes and more shit. Yeah. Subscribe. Ra- give us a rating on iTunes. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> All right. Yeah, until next time.